Hello and welcome to the Ridgeway Security Hour, brought to you by the Matthew B. Ridgeway Center for International Security Studies and the Graduate School for Public and International Affairs at the University of Pittsburgh. I am your host, Kira Sanderson. And thanks, Kira. I'm one of the producers of the Ridgeway Security Hour, Adam Dietrich. And before we get to our interview with Charles Skinner, I just want to take a moment to thank our loyal listenership for sticking with us these past few months. Hopefully you'll continue this on in the new year. Maybe consider it a, a resolution or something like that. Uh, yeah, so times have been a little hectic at the uh, Ridgeway Center right now, what with the holidays going on and... You know, these little things called final exams coming through. So instead of our typical news topical podcast, uh, we're going to give you something a little different. Uh, you know, this time of year, sometimes you want to go and close that CNN tab, look up on YouTube your favorite Yule Log video, and just crack open a nice book. So here's the unofficial, official Ridgeway Center Holiday Reading Guide. Unlike some of these other reading guides you might see up there on the internet, this is not a best of list of what came out this year, the last decade, or anything like that. Uh, we're grad students, so reading for pleasure is something that gets confined to very small amounts of spaces of the year. So we're, I'm going to be giving you the holiday book guide that, that I'm trying to read uh, over the next couple weeks before things start up again and get crazy. So there we go. Number one, a uh, book came out this year by Kimberly Causing, Open, The Progressive Case for Free Trade, Immigration, and Global Capital. In these times of trade wars and, and you know sniping from both the left and the right to these concepts of free trade, I felt it was an idea to revisit the option. And this book uh, seems just really compelling. And while uh, you know reading this topic may not be quite for fun, I'm as someone who's not an economist, I'm not really going to engage it at any other time unless one that I choose to. So there we go. Book number one on the list. Book two. I'm very excited about it. I got to listen to Samantha Power talk at the Carnegie Institute of Peace here in Washington, D.C. earlier this year, and her narrative and her story is just incredibly compelling. Uh, her new memoir, An Education of an Idealist, covers her times both all the way beginning when she was a war correspondent in Bosnia, all the way to working uh, in the Obama White House, uh, seeing the decision-making process of things like Syria. Uh, going on. It, it seems very compelling. It's very well written. And I'm very excited as someone who's looking to start their career in government to, to get this account through. And, and then finally, what is holiday reading without fiction? I love fiction. I love reading fiction. Uh, sometimes you just have to do something for you. So I'm very excited to read William Gibson's The Periphery, all the way back from 2014. Uh, this came on my radar uh, because I'm a big fan of the of the cyberpunk genre to begin with. Though, uh, while Neuromancer was good, I, I always enjoyed the, the playfulness of Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash. I mean, naming your main character hero protagonist is just... That's a win. Like, I mean, just stop. That's great. Uh, but um, William Gibson's new book... Um, Agency is coming out beginning of January, so it's time to revisit the, the previous one, uh, which is a really interesting take on uh, near-future science fiction to the point that it's almost based in the present. Uh, it's very exciting. I'm looking forward to reading it, and I don't know, I'm hoping maybe you guys might go and check it out from your local library as well. All right, that is our little intro for the Ridgeway Security Hour. Uh, please enjoy our interview with Charles Skinner discussing his career as a Foreign Service Officer at the State Department and maybe a little bit of his tenure here at University of Pittsburgh. And stay tuned afterwards for a special holiday treat. Back to you, Kira. Today I have Matt Pennock, another Security and Intelligence Studies major student like myself, who will be joining me today. We would like to welcome our guest, Dr. Charles Skinner. Dr. Skinner is a retired Department of State Foreign Service Officer where he served in that role for almost three decades and is currently an adjunct professor here at Gispia. Thank you, Matt and Dr. Skinner, for being here today and a part of the episode. I will begin with a few questions for you, Dr. Skinner, and then I will turn it over to Matt who will ask you some questions as well. So my first question for you is, how did you decide to pursue a career in the Foreign Service? 
When I was finishing my PhD uh, in history, there weren't many jobs in history. It was the end of the baby boom, and actually they'd hired lots of young people to teach, and there weren't many more jobs. And history is a very fragmented field. So I took the Foreign Service exam and uh, passed it and got interviewed for it and got an invitation. And I hadn't been as nervous as I might have been because I was still hoping that I would get a college job, but things weren't working out and there was this opportunity, so I took it. And I, and I took it partly because I had, a, I had studied history and so I was interested in, in international relations. And I had spent a junior year abroad and I traveled a good bit around and I, I thought it would be an interesting uh, life. And I know I mentioned earlier that this a role of almost three decades. So during your time, did you have a favorite job or a post that you served? People always ask mm-hmm. that. And I, uh, I must say, I found every one of them interesting. I rarely got the job that I bid on that I wanted to get. Uh, they were all different in different ways. Uh, I went first to Jamaica because I already had a foreign language. So they could send me to, the, to an English-speaking uh, job. And that was an exciting time in Jamaica because they had a, a sort of watershed election. And that was happening while we were there. And it was, of course, my first post. So that was interesting. And Jamaicans are just very friendly people. Then I went to Yugoslavia, which by contrast was, you know, a much more complex society and a, a different language, which I had had six months of training in before I went there. That was my first Slavic language. And... Uh, and Yugoslavia was a very professional country for diplomacy. Um, they were not aligned. Uh, they took their foreign policy very seriously. And they had, and this was just after Tito died, so people were concerned about how much it was staying together. So that was good. Then I went to Hamburg, Germany, where I wasn't in the capital. I was out in the hustings. And the interesting thing about that was I got to see, meet German politicians on the make, young people. And one of them eventually became chancellor and another one became president. So people said, well, that was good. Well, I met almost a thousand politicians in Northern Germany. And, and that was, you know, that was fun because I was very much my own boss and I, I was out there getting to know that, but it wasn't sort of at the center of policymaking, which is what happened because when I went from there, I went back to Washington to the East German desk which was a Cold War job, and then to the Berlin desk, and then the wall came down. And that really became the focus of foreign policy for uh, my boss, uh, Jim Baker, and for George Herbert Walker Bush. So that was very exciting. And um, then I went back to Germany to be our first exchange diplomat. I sort of served in the German foreign office, and we had not had something like that before in the foreign office. My German colleagues always asked me, well, how is this like what you do in the State Department? And actually, it was a lot like it, but it was still exciting to be in a different system. And then uh, I went to uh, NATO headquarters in Brussels, and NATO was at that moment seized with uh, the conflict in Bosnia and subsequently in Kosovo. But it was also engaged in the process of trying to build a relationship with its former adversaries uh, from the Warsaw Pact and uh, the Soviet Union. And that was a very exciting time. And then finally, at the end of my career, uh, I did the NATO things for about seven years. At the end of my career, I, I went to London. And the surprise there was the Iraq War. Uh, so my work requirements were Iraq, Iraq, Iraq. But London is a partner for most of the world, so actually we worked on issues all around the world in that time. So there were all great posts, uh, all very exciting times, and you know I wouldn't, uh, I don't have any regrets. Thank you for that. And then, as you mentioned, you were a diplomat in Europe during the Cold War. So what was the transition like after the Cold War for Foreign Service? Well, I think I should say first. In the Cold War, I say particularly when I was East German desk officer, I knew that many of the people I was working with were people who worked with the 
state security, the Stasi. So, I mean, I really was working with people who were very much our enemies. Um, and, and yet, at the same time, we had a, a relationship that we were working on. And that meant I had to assume that every phone call I made, everything I did that could be seen, when I visited there, every time I crossed the wall, that all of this was being tracked. And I've actually wondered whether if I went back and looked at the Stasi archives, whether they, because I had done dissertation research in Berlin. So I'd been in and out of East Berlin. I mean, I, I, at that point where the East meets West, I was very well, very well aware of what the Cold War was. Um, that began to change uh, with Gorbachev. And in some ways, it, it had already changed in the West. I think one difference between then and now was that there was a bipartisan consensus about the Cold War in terms of seeing the Soviet Union as an adversary. There was a policy difference. There were some people who wanted to take a hard line, and there were other people who wanted to try detente and understanding. And my view has always been that in some ways this natural plurality of opinion in a democracy was a great advantage in the Cold War because it meant the Soviets had to try to decide what are we up against? Which, which way is it going? And we could sort of hold both policy options out there. And in fact, it very much got symbolized by Reagan's taking a hard line at the beginning of his term and then eventually making these first arms control agreements uh, of his presidency with, uh, and the subsequent ones at the time of the end of the Cold War with Gorbachev. So to me, though, the great, I mean, the excitement of the wall coming down, something that people thought was just not going to happen. I mean, we're at this 30th anniversary. And, and I tell people this story of East German pastors coming to see me when I was desk officer in May of 1989. And afterwards, when they'd asked, when is Honecker going to come to the United States? And I said, well, I don't really have an official authorized answer to give you on this question because it's not really sort of been officially on the agenda. But I said, it's very hard for the United States to understand a country whose leader was the person who built the wall. And I said, the optics of seeing that on the South Lawn of the White House is just difficult. And they told the West German pastor who brought them to see me later that this guy was, his head was full of concrete. This was never going to happen. Now, I imagine there was probably an informant in the group, so maybe that's what they had to say. But they were the people who understood the pressure in their society to open up. And, I, and for me, that decade in the 90s when we were trying to build a relationship with Russia and we were trying to incorporate, bring all the other countries in Europe into the organizations that have been so successful in the West, that was a great creative time. Although I was also witnessing this conflict in the Balkans where I had lived and found it fascinating and all the differences fascinating. And, and that was tragic because in some ways, Yugoslavia could have been the first country to integrate into NATO and into the EU. Thank you, Dr. Skinner. And then I'm going to turn it over now to Matt, who has a few questions for you. Yeah, so I was wondering if you could tell me um, a little bit about the reputation of the Foreign Service uh, back when you served. I think when I started, government service was not wildly popular. My generation was very much the generation of, of Vietnam. Now, I was coming into the Foreign Service sort of a decade after finishing college, but Certainly my college and early graduate years were shaped by Vietnam. I mean, this was what every male had to face in, in the end when they got rid of the exemptions. Um, so it very much shaped people's views, and people were not really keen on government service. Um, so I, I don't think it was wildly popular, and I also don't think people were students were as internationally oriented as students are today. Maybe being here at Gispia, mm -hmm. I'm my view is a little skewed, 
But my experience of students here is they have more international experience than my uh, generation did. And I, you know, I was recently at my college for my 50th reunion. And when I, and I actually, as it turns out, I got an award. And they, so I talked about all my career. And even my friends from my junior year abroad were just amazed at the amount of time I'd spent overseas. You know, it was 20 years at the Foreign Service, and then there were a few other years doing research and so on. So even for the people who like that, they, they really consider what their life would have been like if they'd been taken away from friends and family. And we weren't always as connected as we are in the Internet world. I mean, you really were at the beginning, quite far removed from that. So it's hard to get our mind around it today, but you really were leaving the United States. So I guess, um, how did, you know, you worked under many presidential uh, administrations. How did they treat the Foreign Service? How did they rely on uh, America's diplomatic corps to um, conduct foreign policy abroad? I think every administration comes in with a certain suspicion. Um, and, and part of that is natural. But I, I even saw a tension between Reagan and Bush, the same parties. Each president wants their own team to manage the relations. But, you know, it's the Foreign Service is a group of professionals whose job it is to serve, and they certainly will try to do their best to make sure the new team is briefed on what's going on and why, and to discuss with the new team what they want to do and how best to get it done. So, I, I mean, I think that has been, over the course of my career, the case. And the one instance that sort of really, I would guess, stands out from anybody from my period was that point at which um, there was a move underway to require everyone to have uh, to have uh, a uh, lie detector test. And that was somewhat controversial. And the Secretary of State was George Schultz. And he came back from a trip overseas where this, this while this issue had been. And when he got off the plane, he said, well, now that I'm back, I just want to say I am not going to insist on this. But if that's what people want, I'll take the first test and then I'll resign. So I felt like here was somebody who was clearly trying to support what we were doing. And I also felt that after 9-11, uh, Colin Powell was very emphatic about the need for diplomacy, not, not just the military to deal with the problem, but diplomacy to deal with the problem. And I... You know, actually, I would say my experience has been uh, up, up to now that I have always felt like administrations realize that the Foreign Service is an instrument there to serve that administration. So um, could you elaborate sort of on that nexus between um, nonpartisan diplomats and the political appointees or the president's uh, kind of core group of selected policy officials? Well, <clears throat> the key nexus for most desk officers is when a new ambassador is assigned. And with a new president, all existing ambassadors, both career and political appointees, submit their resignation. So the ambassador can, the president can nominate the people that the president wants. Generally, career officials are left in place until a new person is selected. And there was even one case from uh, Bush 41 to Clinton when the ambassador I was serving under in uh, Bonn, uh, Bob Kimmett, was left there uh, for a good six months or more, I think, he had a lot of children. He wanted them to be able to finish the school year there. And the Clinton administration had not decided. They eventually decided on uh, Richard Holbrook. Um, but until they decided that, they left uh, 
this republic, very Republican uh, person, uh, Bob uh, Kimmett, in place. And um, so anyway, the point I was going to make is that if you're on a desk at that time, you will be, one of your main jobs will be helping whoever is nominated for an ambassadorship to get briefed to testify for the Senate to get the advice and consent of the Senate, which is essential for an ambassador. So that's, that's one thing. One of the other things you do is you write these briefing papers. The outgoing team wants to tell their story and pass that on. Then by the time the new team comes on, it needs updating, so you write it again. And usually the first thing that you do is everybody goes through in a dialogue with the new team to try to develop a new policy that is set. So you go th you, over and over, you go through the process of trying to adjust your policy to what, what the administration is going, you know, providing the insight of where things stand right now. Okay. Um, so I guess, you know, recently with the most recent uh, administration, um, I think the way that uh, Trump goes about um, relying on the uh, institutional expertise of the State Department and their core, uh, core career uh, diplomats has been, I would say, uh, uh, less than previous administrations. I think it started with Tillerson. Tillerson kind of came in and kind of gutted the State Department. Um, and there was a lot of expertise that was lost, uh, a lot of uh, generalists that were lost. And then you have another um, secretary following Tillerson and Pompeo, who seems to be kind of removed from the State Department itself. Um, and I would even argue that he's using that, that office as his own political tool. Um, so, I mean, like, it doesn't seem like there is a whole lot of reliance uh, on the career diplomats. Um, it, like, it seems that Trump and his administration are generally and almost singularly uh, relying on his political appointees. So, I mean, I don't know, it, it just seems very uh, problematic to me. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on, I guess, the state of the Foreign Service under the Trump administration and, I guess, the future uh, of the Foreign Service and if the Foreign Service can come back from, um, I guess, uh, the decisions by the, of the Trump administration. Uh, well, I do think the expertise is critical. If you had a heart problem, you'd want to go to a doctor who was trained in it. If you have a military problem, you want to get... A general with experience. And I think the same is true in your dialogue. Presidents, even secretaries of state, can only concentrate on a limited number of issues. And to be effective, this needs to be coordinated, not only within the government, but with our uh, friends and allies around the world. And there's a process that allows you to do that. And while today's communication has allowed the president to give his views in a very succinct, clear way, um, you know, almost instantaneously on any developments, still a range of issues that he's addressing are uh, limited. And, and often he's reacting without a lot of background information on, on the issues he's trying to address. Uh, he's effective in getting his message across, but you know, it's, it's just public affairs. It's not, um, it's not getting at more of the details that you need to do. When he reaches an arms control agreement with North Korea, he'll need to have the details worked out about how it's going to be monitored and administered. So I mean, you, you cannot do the job well without relying on the expertise, it seems to me. And a lot of positions have been left vacant. Um, mm -hmm. So there means they're av avoiding uh, having people in key jobs. Now, as always happens, the people who were the deputies will stand up and try to carry on. But in most cases, these are two jobs. It's not just one job. And one person can manage for a brief time. And, and I think one of the State Department's strengths is it does try to cope, but it, it can leave people with the illusion of, of doing the job as well as it should be done. 
So we have these very critical uh, issues um, pertaining to national security. I mean, I mean, you brought up North Korea, um, you know, Iran, certainly, uh, and, you know, Russia, you know, where we need these experts to kind of guide policymakers to make uh, sound and efficient decisions. Yet the Trump administration um, hasn't been too kind to a lot of these experts. Um, I speak mainly about uh, Masha Yovanovitch. Uh, um, Trump was actively tweeting uh, disparaging remarks during her testimony um, on Congress or at Congress. And um, it, it, like, it just seems counterintuitive to rely on these experts, but at the same time, you know, disrespect them in a very unprofessional way. Um, kind of, you know, mock them. Uh, so, I mean, I just, yeah, it just seems incredibly problematic and it doesn't seem um, positive or beneficial for the Foreign Service, you know, especially because, um, the, you know, the State Department does need to actively fill these positions on a yearly basis. And it's not exactly inviting for young people if we have a, an administration, um, you know, actively uh, disrespecting um, our, 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 our nation's diplomats. Well, I must say that when I saw that Masha was being recalled, I actually posted a little note on Facebook, which is my site is really only open to my friends, but I was just saying what a great professional was. She was somebody that when I was on the NATO desk around 2000 in D.C., she was working on the, the office in the office in the State Department in the, in the Bureau that dealt with the former Soviet Union. She's just a very professional uh, and I think very capable Foreign Service officer. It was a pleasure to work with her. And I was just surprised that she would be uh, recalled. And then uh, to read, uh, when I saw the, this transcript that was released and I saw the president disparaging his ambassador, to the other leader. I mean, I, that was really a shock to me. I, I think even if you had wanted to, to make a different point, that person is your representative. And I, every Foreign Service officer probably feels they wish they could get more support from the president. But this, this was really, as as I think Masha said in her testimony, uh, devastating to, to find that you're out there to represent this person. And that's, and to be criticized for that. And here's somebody who has a reputation of, of being concerned about uh, corruption. And, and the president has said that was his concern. So I, I don't understand why, what the advantage is for the president to do this. And I, I really am sympathetic. I mean, I, most of these people who have testified, a lot of them I know, and others I know their reputations well. I, you know, this is really, I think, a symptom of how polarized our uh, political world comes. As I said, in the Cold War, I worked with people from both sides, and I never got the impression that we were not viewed as their diplomatic front line out there to represent them. Um, you know, I could, you know, I can't count all the times that I talked with members of Congress from both sides, and, and that was the impression that I always got. It didn't mean that there weren't policy differences, but the point was, in a democracy, you have those and you work them out. And there's also, an, it seems to me, an imperative in our system to reach an agreement on a way ahead. The game is not just to score points and to win elections. It's to move forward on these issues. So um, that, that brings up an interesting question. Uh, you know, it seems that, you know, a lot of these diplomats that have testified, um, I mean, it seems like, they were pressured in some way to, you know, especially in, in light of Ukraine, uh, pressured from these political appointees, you know, from, from the top down to, um, I guess, uh, 
lobby on behalf of Trump to uh, to to ask the Ukrainians to investigate Biden uh, and his son. So I, I just um, wondering if you could speak to um, you know is is there ever like a pressure coming from the top down to get a foreign service officer or these these diplomats to 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 do a certain thing that they may not feel comfortable with, they may not agree with. And if that is the case, I mean, like, how, how do you, like, how do you cope with um, doing something you might not agree with? Um, and if you don't agree with it, uh, you know, are there mechanisms in, in place to, like, to, to, I guess, blow the whistle and say, no, this isn't right, this isn't constitutional? Well, apart from the whistleblower function, there's it's very famous uh, provision in the State Department's regulations for a dissent channel, for people who disagreed with policy. And there have been people who disagreed with our policy, with the Bush 43 policy on Iraq, uh, with uh, the policy on uh, the Balkans. Uh, there were people who resigned, and there were people who sent a cable. I mean, it's a cable. It could be sent from Washington to Washington. But it's a specific channel, and it's supposed to be go from the officer to the Secretary of State to express that, and, and it's there to make sure that all views are, are heard. And, you know, it's also was my experience that if you work, even as a career official, with one administration, the next administration is bound to look at you a little suspiciously, although... I can also think of cases where even if they started that way, they came to realize that this was a professional officer with a lot of expertise who could serve the new administration as well. Um, I think that uh, that is the way, I mean, ideally you would never have any suspicion about the political uh, orientation and that you would have debates about policy because you don't want to do something without somebody asking, wouldn't it be better if? But um, it, it does seem that we're in a very polarized situation and it is very uncomfortable for, the, for foreign service officers to find themselves in the middle of a political campaign. Everybody knows that President Trump is planning on running for re-election. And there are certainly plenty of Democrats who've signed up to run against him. So there's obviously going to be a split. But um, in the meantime, all kinds of things are happening in the world and and people will try to do their job. So I I, I think it's, it's a very difficult situation for foreign service officers to find themselves caught in this crossfire or to be even asked to help in this crossfire. Yeah, I'm, I'm just surprised that there wasn't more um, pushback from, because, you know, I, I assume that uh, Trump and his administration probably kept the circle rather tight um, in, uh, in regards to Ukraine, but I'm just, I'm just surprised that there weren't more officials within the State Department who didn't, you know, say anything or, or, or or maybe if they did, you know, why, like why weren't they listened to? Like why, like why did it take um, someone uh, from within the White House, I guess, to, to initially blow the whistle when it seems like this was uh, a several month long uh, issue? Well, you'd have to know the whole history of, yeah. of everything, and I think there are probably still things to be learned about this process. But it would appear that this issue was being worked on in a very small circle, and uh, one can appreciate perhaps why. Um, but I think in a democracy, people should realize that there's never any project that's going to remain secret forever, yeah. that, that the, you know, the details will come out. And there are plenty of cases when people became aware of what was going on, like Kurt Volker, uh, they uh, did resign and step down. Um, so one could wish for more 
uh, uh, stronger backing. But given how decimated the top ranks are, I don't know that I, I don't know that the circle was much wider than I would have anticipated its being. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and that could very well be the case. I was just surprised that you know there weren't you know like political officers, for example, in Kiev that may have heard of this. Uh, these meetings between the ambassador uh, and uh, President Zelensky. Um, and, you know, there was no dissent, I guess. Well, no, pub well, no, well, no public dissent, at least that was, re you know, released to the public. Well, I think, I mean, if you follow the details, the, the transcript of the conversation was not widely shared. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, it was kept quite tight until the issue broke. So that even somebody like Kurt Volker, who'd been the special representative for Ukraine, who was fairly inner circle, you would think, was not a party to the conversation at the time. Um, to some extent, uh, that has always tended to be the case, that uh, the conversations of leaders uh, with each other are often kept mm -hmm. fairly close hold. Um, I would contrast, actually, with my experience in the German foreign ministry, where the German foreign minister at the time, Hans-Dietrich Genscher, usually had the cable reporting his conversations, sent out the night of the conversation, so everybody in the German foreign office knew what he had said on an issue. In my experience with the State Department, that was never the case. We would rarely have that. To some extent, that reflects the the way that whatever the U.S. says gets focused on. But it also does require a lot of careful management to get the information out clearly and accurately in a timely way. So let me ask you this, and this is kind of a tough question. Um, isn't what you just described in some ways uh, undemocratic is where you have um, yes, the president is elected, but you but you have like this small circle um, of these selected individuals uh, essentially deciding policy um, and they can essentially do whatever they want. And in this case, they chose to, I guess, abuse that power. Um, yeah, so I mean, I just find it you know problematic that one, we give uh, the president so much power to be able to unilaterally do this. I mean, yes, I, I fully understand that, you know, he does have this elected mandate, but I mean, I, but I, I personally believe that if they're, that, that say if these career officials like, you know, like foreign service officers were, were more intimately involved in policy, um, I, I feel, I feel as if it would be more democratic and you wouldn't have, uh, issues of corruption as well. Or just like abuse of power, like, and they wouldn't be as rampant um, throughout, you know, all these different kinds of presidential administrations. Well, I think there are two things there, and I think I've already, in some ways, talked to that. As, as a foreign service officer who's out there doing their job, I've always wished that there was more transparency and, and openness about what was being said. On the other hand, it's also been my experience that very often these kinds of conversations were very close hold, in part because the process of building a consensus about a way forward requires that people have a certain freedom to voice their views. And I think, as to some extent this whole episode shows, that our democracy is still uh, operating in that the details are becoming public and are being debated. Um, I'm... I think they're being debated in a very partisan, polarized world. So it's not the ideal of what I hope we'd have here at Pitt in terms of an mm -hmm. academic conversation about what is the right way to act and what's the right thing to do. Um, I think everything tends to be looked at depending on which side of the political divide you are on and not really looking at what is our goal in Ukraine. Uh, Kurt Volker said, you know, one of the details that's lost in this thing has been, what is, what are we trying to achieve in Ukraine? We're, we're just focused on the impeachment and not on the dilemma in Ukraine, which was yeah. what he had seen as his, what he was working on. 
so I guess I'll finish with this and then I'll, I'll turn it back over to, uh, to, to Kira. Um, in light of what we've talked about, um, what advice would you give uh, to people um, wanting to join the Foreign Service? Well, I would hope that one of the gold linings of the current period where so many people have, uh, have left for one reason or another is that there will be a lot of vacancies in the future and that there will be more opportunities to rebuild. And uh, one of the things I've tried to do here at Gispia is to pass on what I wish I had known when I, uh, before I had gone into the Foreign Service give some sense of what uh, the work is like. Um, I do think that although we have incredible communication around the world today, there still is never going to be any substitute for people who see each other every day, not just in terms of an official communication via a telephone conversation like the president had with Zelensky, but who see each other, you know, more often, and who have people who representing the United States who live in these countries and know what life is like in those countries and, and can relate to them and help the conversation so that we understand each other better. Um, I, I think the job of diplomacy in some ways is just making sure that we're talking to each other and understanding each other. And um, in the importance of that, even this episode brings out. So thank you, Matt and Dr. Skinner for that. And just one last question I have for you before we wrap up is, are there just one particular story that you would like to share with us that sticks out to you during your time as a foreign service officer? Oh. I know Adam mentioned to me Richard Holbrook, so I'm not sure. Well, Richard Holbrook is was a uh, quite a uh, figure in diplomacy, and I had sort of two periods of interaction with him. He was my ambassador, as I said, in Bonn after uh, Bob Kimmett, and uh, I had the good fortune... Uh, or some people would say the bad fortune of, of working with him. I, I found him uh, a lot of fun to work with, but he was very focused on what he was doing. And I think uh, that there was not everybody appreciated his, his focus on just one issue and not his, they would have liked to see more support for him across, across the board. I think the best a Richard Holbrook story I can tell you is that uh, um, at one point he was very absorbed with a visit by Strobe Talbot. Um, and, and if you've read the biography of, of Holbrook that's just come out, you know that Talbot was a key uh, contact of his throughout his career. And um, this goes from before the time when I was serving with him into afterwards. So he's very focused on this, but the next event on his agenda was a visit by uh, Senator Sam Nunn. And I had been tasked with talking with Nunn's office and preparing a program for Nunn's visit. And um, perhaps operating in the past, since I had a the kind of memo that I thought Bob Kimmett would have liked to see about the visit that laid out everything about uh, what he wanted to do. And Holbrook had given me his ideas for the visit, and I had passed those on to uh, Nunn's assistant, and that and come back said, no, that was not what he wanted. He wanted these other things. So I had laid this all out on a memo. Well, the way Holbrook's operates, the minute he said goodbye to mm -hmm. Strobe Talbot at uh, Frankfurt Airport. He picked up his cell phone, and they even had cell phones that day, and called Sam Nunn and started talking about his ideas for the visit. And Sam Nunn, realizing, I guess, that Holbrook did not, had not been briefed on what was coming, he said, Dick, don't you know what I wanted to do on this program? 
aren't you informed by your embassy what you, you know what I want? Well, let me tell you, I was fortunately not at the embassy when he came back. He was not very happy. And his assistant, Rosemary Polly, uh, when I got back, I was delivering a demarche at the foreign ministry. And I, she got back, she says, give him about an hour to cool down and then go in and apologize, which I did. Um, and, you know, a great time after that. He, he got over his anger and things. And we had a great visit. And I think Senator Nunn went out of his way to make sure that Holbrook appreciated what I had done for the visit. And so that he realized he was in not as bad to say. But it gave me this insight into the way Holbrook operated uh, and how it was important. Every time you work for somebody, you really have to be able to communicate with that person in a timely way, whatever is going on. So I just had that little <laughs> vignette of foreign service life to share with you. Well, thank you for sharing that. And then I just want to extend another thank you to Matt and Dr. Skinner for being here today. We really appreciate you being here and have enjoyed this conversation. So it's a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Kira. And we're back here at the Ridgeway Security Hour. And I wanted to thank you again for listening this holiday season. Now, I promised you a special treat if you stuck through the whole episode. And here you go. There is a very special day. This holiday season. That's right. I'm talking about the release of Rise of Skywalker, the last of the official Star Wars saga movies for right now, featuring the Skywalker family. Very exciting. Now, some of you may not be as big a fans as I am of the Star Wars movies. Some of you might have friends and co-workers who haven't seen Star Wars yet. And you're like, Adam, how do I show people these wonderful movies in what order? Because they're released at different times. There's things going on. Blah, 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 blah. I have the answer for you. I have the Ridgeway official, unofficial, approved Star Wars viewing order. Now, this will be similar to some of the ones that you see online if you've gone on the Reddits or, or whatnot about it. But my own special twist. So here we go. This is best viewed in this order. Uh, and also because who's got the time to marathon like 20 hours of movies? Double, it's accessible as double features. So, here we go. Start off Rogue One, one of the newer movies. Don't got to deal with why am I watching something from the 70s? Get those hooks right in there. Uh, fantastic uh, movie, ground level, and very much establishes why the, the Empire is uh, the bad guys. If you've ever had that question, no one really has. Transition from there to Star Wars A New Hope, the classic, the original. We meet all our main characters. It's great. Then Empire Strikes Back, one of the best movies in the series, hands down. Here's where we mix things up. The next series would be a bit of a flashback. Uh, instead of the, the prequels, which, let's be honest, are terrible, and if Star Wars was a religion, would be heretical documents, I'm just saying. Uh, we utilize the Clone Wars cartoon series. If you've never watched this from Cartoon Network, it's actually pretty good, but I'm not going to make you watch all of it. Like, let's be clear. That's a lot, and, you know, some of the episodes are, are not quite as great as other ones. So here we go. This is a six-episode list to watch to kind of give you the backstory of what happened before the Star Wars movies. You know, what happened with Anakin Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi without having to look at Hayden Christensen, because uh, ain't nobody want to do that. So here we go. Start off with Season 3, Episode 2, Arc Troopers, then Season 2, Episode 13, Voyage of Temptation, Season 5, Episode 1, Revival. Season 4, Episode 8, The General. Season 5, Episode 16, The Lawless. And Season 6, Episode 10, The Lost Ones. This will form a nice mini-arc kind of cover like of various amounts of stories from the series while forming its own kind of mini-narrative. The idea in my mind was like, once Luke has that encounter with Darth Vader, gets his hand cut off, hashtag spoilers... He goes around and he asks people around the rebellion, like, hey, what happened before? Like, who was my father? Who was Obi-Wan? What was going on in the Clone Wars? This is the stories that he would hear that would kind of flesh that out and kind of guide Luke from who he is in Empire to the next movie we watch, The Return of the Jedi. At the end of the original Star Wars saga, we see, surprise, The Return of the Jedi and uh, The Fall of the Empire. 
Now the next piece here is still ongoing, but I can highly recommend The Mandalorian on Disney+. Plus. Um, they will have up to the penultimate episode by the release of Rise of Skywalker, so you won't have the season finale yet, but it's a fantastic look at the kind of periphery of the Star Wars universe. You're not going to get Jedi and Sith fighting it out here. You're going to get just a lone gunslinger and a very western motif flying around space doing a complicated profession. Now we get up to the new Star Wars movies here, The Force Awakens. Some people see it more as a reboot. You know, compared to the prequels, I would say it's more of a return to form, but there that's where we meet Rey, that's where we meet Poe and Kylo Ren, kind of our new main characters. Um, from there, we have a flashback to Solo, a Star Wars story. Um, because of the, the arc of Han Solo in the new movies, I think it's very appropriate to use Solo here as kind of a flashback to kind of make the, the beginning of this new trilogy very much focused on Han and his relationship with the other characters, including Kylo Ren. Uh, again, spoiler, uh, his kid. Uh, so the, from there we go to The Last Jedi. Somewhat of a divisive movie, uh, I would argue, and will argue, repeatedly, that it is one of the best of the new movies. It is the most character-driven Star Wars movie, it is the most visually appealing Star Wars movie, and Ryan Johnson's a great filmmaker. Uh, watch Looper, or Knives Out. It's fantastic. So that catches you up with the main movies up to before Rise of Skywalker. Now, as you see, I've kind of been using this kind of like flashback model. So it's like what to watch right before seeing Rise of Skywalker. What to watch while you're sitting in the parking lot or waiting in line to see this movie. So here we go. Three episodes from The Clone Wars. Um, it's called the Mortis Trilogy. It's a very weird offshoot that didn't make much sense at the time. Anakin and Obi-Wan find themselves in a lost sector of space, meet three force gods that represent light the light side the dark side and balance and they have this own mini epic tragedy play out on this planet and it was weird and no one talked about it but they've brought it back in the later uh cartoon series star wars rebels which is not necessary for you to watch but they, they've disney is continuing to reinforce this as part of the star wars canon and part of the star wars universe and there's part of me that's wondering if any of it will come into play in the new movie, but at the very least, Star Wars is all about repetition and repeat and remixing. So a mini story about the light side and the dark side and balance has to be appropriate for a movie coming up that's going to end, well, the Star Wars saga. All right, well, there you go. That That is my galaxy brain flashback incentivized Star Wars viewing order. Use it if you like. Have a happy holidays. Please rejoin the, the Ridgeway Security Hour podcast starting back up in January. And uh, yeah, this has been uh, Adam Dietrich signing off.